Welcome to Blockchain Recorded, the podcast for the tech curious, where we talk about anything and everything related to the exponentially evolving crypto, blockchain, and Web 3.0 space. Our mission is simple, to share knowledge, facilitate discourse, and help evolve education in blockchain fundamentals, decentralization solutions, and relevant use cases for today's digital economy. We at Blockchain Recorded are not registered investment advisors and do not deal with financial or trading token elements, nor offer any licensed financial services. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, while the opinions of all parties involved are their own. I'm your host, Nina Tserar, and now let's talk blockchain. Before we begin, this podcast is possible by our sponsor at Ambire. The Ambire wallet is one of the top products in crypto asset management. It is the first open source, non-custodial smart wallet that delivers exceptional user experience combined with solid security. With Ambire wallet, users can easily navigate the world of Web3. It comes packed with features like built-in swaps, cross-chain bridges, integrated earning opportunities, and more. In addition, Ambire offers things like human-readable transaction parsing, eliminating ERC-20 approvals and front-running protection. The smart wallet uses gas abstractions that allow for unique features like paying for gas with stable coins. Users can batch multiple transactions to save time and gas fees. The wallet also supports NFTs and allows you to connect to any dApp via Wallet Connect. You can use it with an email and password or add hardware wallets or hot wallets as signers to upgrade your security. And the best part? Ambire speaks human. The UI is friendly and informative, ensuring you understand what you're doing and eliminating risks for mistakes. Ambire wallet users are currently eligible for continuous wallet token rewards. To learn more and get your Ambire account today, visit www.ambire.com. That is A-M-B-I-R-E.com. Before I introduce our guest today, I have a couple of brief updates for our community. We invite everyone to join us on Twitter Spaces, where we pre-stream each episode the day before distributing it, distributing it on all major podcast platforms. For the platform list, visit our website, blockchainrecorded.com. We also have a new NFT program with Blockchain Recorded Community NFTs. These can be claimed from our homepage. So check us out, visit our website, and follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for updates and potential airdrops. So without further ado, with us today, we have Tom Ivey, a returning guest and recent founder of Valar, a platform for decentralized migration and property services, which is a furthermore a solution for DAOs to acquire and administer land, along other land-related tooling for Web3. Just a few things about Tom. Tom is a protocol politician of three years and the founding chief of staff at CryptoGov startup Commonwealth Labs, which was the center of our discussion for the first time he joined our podcast uh, a little over a year ago. Tom led marketing community and later stewarded the Edgeware Network, the first mainnet in the Polkadot ecosystem. Today, we're talking about his new project, Valor. So Tom, welcome back to Blockchain Recorded. Thank you, Nina. Very happy to be here. So as I mentioned before, we previously talked about Commonwealth Labs and all things Edgeware. Well, this time around, we will cover the concept of um, DAOs, your project, network states, um, and everything related uh, to Web3 tooling. Firstly, what have you been up to since we talked last year and what brought you to founding Valor? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think last time we talked, you know, I was kind of like at the peak of my involvement in Edgeware mm -hmm. and that has wound down a bit. The community has kind of taken over control of the network in a great way. Mm -hmm. I was a centralized figure. So in the spirit of decentralization, it's like essential that, you know, I, I go away at some point. <laughs> so I kind of let everybody know that it was time to figure it out. And um, 
I stepped down formally and I kind of took a few months sabbatical. And then I worked on um, a friend's project for a little bit in the NFT space, learned a little bit about kind of like dynamic reputation um, and, and kind of like generative content and NFTs. Um, that project was called Metagame. And then I uh, have become increasingly interested in kind of like the failure of the social fabric, I would say, mm-hmm. especially in the West here in the US, you know, there's this like general malaise over kind of what what's happening with civic involvement, whether that's voting, optimism about the future, uh, procreation and like our birth rate. And so, you know, Valor is actually like a, a kind of transcendental project for me in that it ties up a lot of my experience and concerns about how we're living and where we're going and attempts to kind of solve them using a collection of economic and social mechanisms. Interesting. So you've also been thinking about where we're going <laughs> in terms of everything that's been going on in the world for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a fascinating fascinating way to spend your sabbatical. Did you spend the, the entire sabbatical working on, on your friend's project or were you able to take some time off? No, no, that was about a, about a month and a half in, in uh, New York, which I highly recommend if you've never been. Um, I actually lived in New York for a few years, so, um, but just, just not in, in, in the recent times. Yeah. The recent times are crazy. Just r- really quick note. It's like, it's absorbed like half the SF crypto scene, mm-hmm. which is now living in Brooklyn and like Williamsburg. And so you've got like the Manhattan kind of like DeFi people, including Commonwealth Labs, my former team, and like Soho has become kind of the hotspot. So it's almost like two cities worth of crypto cities now. Yeah. I mean, New York is a different New York than the New York that I know. Um, That was the New York like 20 years ago. So that was more the uh, post-dot-com boom New York. But interesting. Yeah, it's cool. Well, in terms of founding Valor, so if I understand correctly, I don't know much about it, and that's why you're here today to talk to us about it. So Valor acts as an intermediate between on-chain communities and the off-chain world. Am I on the right track? Yeah, exactly. There's, um, I forget who said it, I might have been like Paul Graham or something, but he says a lot of the, the innovation in startups is about one of two things, bundling or unbundling. Mm. And so Valor basically kind of like injects itself, you know, as an intermediary between decentralized entities like DAOs and centralized entities like landowners, mm-hmm. property developers, real estate professionals, and even municipalities. So we're kind of like a nexus. You can think about us in the same category as maybe Uber, or like Airbnb, and this kind of thing that like doesn't actually have to own any cars to give you a ride, or doesn't have to own any buildings to give you um, a place to stay. So we're largely like a, a coordinative layer between DAOs and any group of people um, ideally, not not just crypto, and those who want to kind of like provide them services. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about land. What made you go into the concept of land? So land as a service. Mm-hmm. When we think about like the coming generation, the Zoomers, they live their entire life online. All their social interactions are intermediate by apps. Mm. And this is only growing. Since 2013, you know, I looked at some data yesterday the average young person is spending an increasing proportion of their time alone. And that trend is not ending. They're spending less time with friends and they're spending less time with like, you know, intimate companions. That's not good. <laughs> so the, the question is like, how do we get people offline using online? And I think land is the natural conclusion to that question. Getting people in proximity. I talk about like offline culture a lot increasingly. And, and like the, the notion of being like an offliner, like somebody who's like conscientiously not using the internet for everything they could be in order to reconnect with people that are actually around them. And so why I think land is also interesting is this notion of like epistemic fracture. And, and we're going to get a little extract for just a second here. Mm-hmm. I, I think like with the internet and this kind of like it myriad production of perspectives, we have 
you know, trillions of terabytes of, of images now, it seems like that's, that's a hyperbole, mm-hmm. but there's a lot. And, you know, a billion tweets, everybody can, can produce all these sentences and propositions and, and claims and perspectives. And it's becoming increasingly difficult to kind of navigate and figure out what's true. Right. And in the advent of like deep fake culture, where now we have images where it's especially tough not to not to uh, gauge what's true. Uh, this is what's called a epistemic fracture. Mm-hmm. The the notion of consensus reality, which and again consensus is like so critical to the functionality of blockchain, is failing. And so my prediction is that the hyperlocal is going to be the only space in which you will have a very clear understanding of kind of like what is going on in your world. You might not be able to trust things in the news that are talking about Russia because they might be propagandized or AI generated. You might not be able to to trust advertisements because they're going to be AI generated and like perfectly tuned to your kind of like psychology in order to evoke an effect, um, a state or an action. But you will be able to trust things that are like pretty close to you and communicated directly between people. So land is the fundamental medium for all of those interactions. When land is your medium, you can do a lot of crazy things with it. You can produce uh, economic functions. You can produce social functions. So if you can control and coordinate on land, um, a whole world opens up. And it's the one thing that DAOs you know, today haven't really been able to do. There's some advances in you know what are called like legal wrappers, where we take a property and we move it into the control or, or ownership of an LLC in the US, I'm a limit, limit, limited liability company. And then we tokenize that LLC so that whoever owns the tokens kind of ends up controlling the land, but really they control the company that owns the land. And so this has become very popular within like a LexDAO community it's called Kali, I believe is the project. And, and there's a couple other companies that are focusing on this mm. um, wrapper tokenization of land. So there's a lot of interest in it. And there's also a couple projects uh, like CabinDAO and CityDAO on the Ethereum side that are that are interested in tokenizing land and giving it over to kind of decentralized governance for the benefit of their members. And so we know that there's demand here and there's you know several kind of in-house teams trying to solve this question of how do we administer land for our members, um, which to me says that there's a need for a platform that can make this easier for everybody all at once. Mm. You said um, you said quite a few important points there, even back to in terms of alluding to going more local and trusting the the local community versus. So it, in essence, are you are you saying that we're deglobalizing? I think yes. I mean, the, in general speak, right? G- given everything that's going on, yes. I, th- I think it's like in an inevitable consequence of technology. Mm. It enabled this global uh, supply chain infrastructure, but it's not going to stay that way. I think. I I, I think like one of the reasons I like with the Urban Project, if you've ever heard of this, is that they experiment with what's called like kind of like neo feudalism. Mm. And I think that with with the the nature of open source technology, the fork and exit culture that we have in crypto, it is very natural that people are going to kind of like federate into zones and bubbles, whether those are physical or digital. Mm-hmm. Let's touch a bit about on the concept of DAOs. So you just talked about, so there's more and more online activity. Also, I would argue with respect to connections and networks in the form of communities that are tied together by common beliefs or common sets of values and or common goals. The concept of DAOs are frequently talked about today and have much evolved from a, f- a couple of years ago, some are even structured off-chain. Can you maybe first build a framework maybe for our listeners or, or help us demystify some, some basic facts in terms of how do, how do on-chain communities work and with basics in terms of how they're formed, governed, funded, et cetera? Mm-hmm. I think the word DAO 
is, is kind of misleading. People love to focus on that D and the O, but they miss the A. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's a bunch of... <laughs> it's hard to define it, yeah. You know, decentralized organizations or digital organizations. And some of those end up, you know, being DAOs. And I think some of the best cases of a true DAO is where the, the you know, the revenue structures, the governance structures are as automated as you can find. So that's like the pure DAO to me. Mm-hmm. Most things are a mix of, you know, manual and automatic control and a mix of centralized and decentralized control features as well. A lot of people think that DAOs are, you know, flat, that there's like a perfect, everyone's equal if we're token voting. And I actually think that's a misnomer because there is a phenomena um, in in these flat hierarchies where the loudest voice, the least shameful voice, um, those that are most shameless end up having extreme control because they're the ones willing to be disagreeable and to inject kind of like social friction into cases. And most people tend to be pretty harmony loving and and go with the flow. Mm -hmm. So I actually prefer systems of kind of explicit hierarchical designation because it, to to me, after running Edra for so long, it's like, it was clear that we had to run kind of like decentralized management of these, I would say like, you know, digital narcissists. And so in light of that, I'm a little bearish on the current state of decentralized governance. And I prefer explicit versus implicit power structures. When you make them explicit, you can monitor them. You can make sure that they're behaving, you know, well, and that new newcomers can kind of onboard more quickly. And I think they're more scalable and, and easier to grow. In the implicit side, you have to like have a high social intelligence, figure out kind of like who's the influential members. Mm-hmm. So that, that's kind of where I think I come at with some of the Valor stuff is like, how do we actually reintroduce what I call humane hierarchies. There was a tweet um, I found a couple a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. and uh, it said like that within the English language there is no longer any word for hierarchy that is not tyrannical. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about decentralization and a lot of the benefits of crypto, it's often about censorship resistance, state resistance. But the costs of these are again that it's decentralized, that it's difficult to manage, that it's expensive, and that it's slow. I, I argue that. We worship decentralization um, for the wrong reasons about in crypto. And while these benefits are extremely valuable and critical in in some very key cases, particularly around censorship resistance and state avoidance, the, the quality of decentralized systems is inhumane. We love delegating trust. We love the role models that operate at higher levels above us that that uh, we can trust to be benevolent and in the ideal case, benevolent dictators. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's interested in that situation, but I think you know practically these work really well over most of history. Most of the longest living countries have been um, hierarchical structures and uh, Mentis Molbug, who this is a very contentious name, but uh, kind of a network associate of mine, Curtis Garvin is his, is his real name. Does a lot of writing on this in the urban e- ecosystem or did back when that got invented about 10 years ago and continues to kind of muse on history. He argues that one of the reasons why America is so successful is that it has a massive decentralized set of monarchies, i.e. corporations, in which a CEO is entrusted with kind of like the final care of everything beneath it. So, I, I you know, to the framework that I'm interested in DAOs is moving away from these robotic, automated, inhumane organizations and back to humane hierarchies um, that have aspects of decentralization to them. Does that kind of help where I'm, I'm coming from? Yeah, no, absolutely. Do you have a concrete example of your humane, what, what, what you just mentioned? Yeah. I mean, is, what's, what do you have in mind? Mm-hmm. I think the best case that's a true hybrid is liquid democracy. Mm-hmm. So this, I think, 
Well, I guess some of the first two organizations to really talk about this was Aragon and Radical Exchange, which is an organization of like political and, and mechanistic design mm-hmm. founded by Eglin Wilde, who's a kind of economic prodigy, more or less. And um, it, it says that we can delegate our vote either for an entire ticket or even on specific issues. So say uh, you know more about economics than I do, and there's a question about economics on the ballot, I'm going to transfer my my vote on that question to you. So now you vote with the power of two. Mm. And I on that question, maybe I, I vote on the power of zero or I skip it or something I mark that I've delegated. And maybe I retain my votes on other issues that I'm more interested in. In Edgeware, we actually had this functionality. Um, so you could delegate. I was the largest delegate um, in that system. And so people could delegate to me and I could vote using their stake. Um, and it was token, token stake there. But I could also re-delegate if I wanted to. And I could do this five times. So we can have these delegation trees about five times deep. And so this is really interesting to me because it fuses kind of decentralized control because you're welcome to withdraw your delegation at any time and, and kind of assume, reassume total control of your of your political voice in that system. Or you can trust me to trust others. And so you get these trees that I think maintain much more information about how influence and decisions operate within systems while keeping some of the, the the tyrannical you know resistance properties but also generating a social structure in which you're looking up to somebody i think role models are really important and again i think hierarchies are very natural and humane um, i had a friend I had a conversation with like two nights ago and she was saying like you know people today they just don't uh you know they, don't, they have no values they don't want to be something and i paused her and i was like there is no in my opinion there is no like mm-hmm. being something in this world people only become things that they see in other people. There's only be- becoming someone. So role models are critical. And decentralized systems, purely decentralized systems, do not offer them. They're pseudonymous, anonymous, and things always boil down to kind of uh, economic transactional framings of values and not anthro- anthro- anthropic embodiments of values. Hmm. Interesting. When you talk about hierarchical versus non, how would you find like a, a regular hierarchical structure. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm just thinking of this. I'm, I'm complete, I'm a complete lay person in, in this matter. For example, I'm just thinking, you know, you gave the example of why is the US, US so successful? I'm thinking, okay, I live in Europe and, you know, we tend to look to Scandinavian countries. So for sort of in the flat hierarchy notion, what does, what does it mean to you in terms of when you say hierarchy? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you mean by that? I actually don't know. It's not about the Scandinavian countries. Do they have mostly direct democracies? Um, mostly. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you're actually, you're, actually, you're actually tying that in with what their political structure is as well. Um, well, I just am trying to understand, I guess, where you're coming from when you kind of point at... I'm talking more in organizations, like companies, oh, oh, okay. in terms of organizational hierarchy. Yeah. yeah. N- not so much governance, not so much like government. Mm-hmm. I think the simplest way to put it is like the phrase, like the buck stops here. You know, there's like somebody at the top who has executive control and is accountable fully. And so when somebody is fully accountable, they experience personal gain or loss based on the system below them. Mm-hmm. In the US, we have a lot of like bureaucratic organizations on the government side, like the FDA, that are kind of ruled by decentralized committee. There's a bunch of like career bureaucrats. Mm. And because there's no single person that is subjected to kind of the, the the final outcome, they can always say, oh, well, that was somebody else's fault. And we get these systems that are really dysfunctional. Yeah. It was there's no accountability. So that's kind of a counterexample, I guess. But I, but yeah, I prefer systems where yeah, I can agree with that. The, the hierarchy results in a person who is fully accountable. Mm-hmm. Let's take a let's take a dive into you previously ta- mentioned network ecosystem. 
are did you mean in terms of network states as well when you talked about your friend or is that a different concept in terms of network ecosystem um i, I guess i'm trying to remember i might have misspoken i maybe I, no no that's okay but we can talk about network states anyway because i think it has um it, it does have a lot to do with what your project's about so in terms of what the concept of network state is, it can be an abstract topic for for listeners that are not familiar with with what a network state is. You're obviously very knowledgeable in governance and politics and philosophy, and you're an extremely eloquent speaker. We've had you here before. Can you maybe take us through what network state means? Yes. And why it would be an important concept to grasp today? Mm-hmm. So the informal sentence from... Uh kind of the guy who's really popularized this, uh, Balaji Srinivasan, mm-hmm. says that a network state is a highly online aligned online community with the capacity for collective action that crowdfunds territory around the world and eventually gains diplomatic recognition from pre-existing states. Mm-hmm. So it really is this idea that instead of prioritizing geo-territorial property, that we should think about the people as kind of like the core constituents of a quote-unquote nation but the nation today relies on yeah geo the geo territorial the network just just relies on the people, and it's enabled by these digitally sovereign spaces since the invention of Bitcoin that are kind of like untouchable and control property without necessarily being attached to a geo territory. And the more complex side, Balaji argues that it's kind of a social network where there is a core moral innovation, which is like a fancy way of saying like a conviction about how things ought to be and a sense of national consciousness around that innovation. He argues that it also needs a kind of recognized founder, um, which I think just you know differentiates network states from these network ecosystems potentially that are more flat, more headless, some, some people say. They retain that collective action ability. There is ideally like a, a level of civic culture, an in-person level of civility. He estimates that they will almost always have an integrated cryptocurrency as most states do, or, or have a money, a currency. Mm-hmm. And then they'll be run kind of through a consensual or, or uh, you know, government basically via smart contracts. And he thinks that they'll they'll start at what he calls like a network archipelago, where there's crowdfunded physical territories, a virtual capital where the governance happens, and uh, on-chain kind of census that can prove population, income, and potentially real estate footprint. And those are the things that he argues will result in this inevitable kind of diplomatic recognition. He also argues that that's the hardest part, getting people together, crowdfunding physical territories, moving them into some sort of legal property. That's 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 all relatively easy. The hard part is proving population and income. And the reason for this is anonymous and pseudonymous participation. We don't really know how many people are participating in network ecosystems because they're addresses and, and they're not civil resistant necessarily. Mm-hmm. This is all network state. Right. And how do you defer before you actually, you did mention the geo factor. What's the difference between when we say nation state versus network state? Mm -hmm. Key difference is that territory versus non-territory. The other piece that I'm increasingly interested in, and um, I was in Miami at a conference called Assembly recently, and I got a chance to ask Balaji, on this very thing, the kind of success of the nation state over the city state, like, you know, Athens and and these like kind of prior historical entities, the rise of the nation state and why those things weren't as successful, I think, is because of what I call like a a coordinative myth or a psycho myth. Um, And it's this belief that 
there is something about the people within Sunbound, some some theory about a group that makes them more like one another or more trustworthy to one another than people outside that group. There are only a couple of these that I think are really successful throughout history. There is the ethnicity that we're like, you know, related, which is basically a souped up version of kind of the, the family or the tribe. There is the religion that we share either some sort of like ethical or metaphysical belief structure. And then there is the nationality. So we have kind of like ethno state, religious state, and we have nation state. And these are the three things that have kind of dominated the coordinative large group space for a long time. Mm -hmm. The network state argues that we don't need necessarily maybe any of these, but I suspect that it will need one or more. Um, and that it's really not mm -hmm. a fundamental shift in how we think about states, but merely an upgrade of the nation state or of the city state or of the ethno state. Um, it, it's imbuing those with the powers of decentralization and these, you know, automated factors, less so reinventing the concept of statehood. What about the self-governance factor? So network states being able to self-govern mm -hmm. and then nation states not. Would you agree with that? I think that the difference primarily is that the logics and the the automation allows us to have transparency into flows of money and to monitor corruption, to ensure that specific outcomes are automated and not left to human control. Those are the things that I think are critical and why the network state is especially interesting over the nation state. The Blockchain Recorded Podcast is a media partner with the Stronger Together Challenge Initiative. Our collaborative role extends to hosting topic-specific panels to facilitate discussion and perspectives within varying industries related to the Web3 space. Let us have a few words with Laurent Perello, the initiative founder. Laurent, what is the Stronger Together Challenge Initiative? First, we have to mention that it's an ecosystem initiative. In other words, a voluntary movement encompassing leading partners and projects of the Tron and BitTorrent chain ecosystem. What are the main goals of this initiative? The main goal is to demonstrate the powerful together effect. As I used to say, together is much more than a word. It's, uh, it's magic. We aim to show to the world crypto industry and beyond that the Web3 revolution is not about competition, but rather about cooperation. You know, we are really supportive, welcoming, open-minded and inclusive. It's not a marketing speech. This initiative is also a way to confirm our long-term commitment, regardless of the bear or bull market situation and our determination to keep on building every day, guided by a long-term vision and a humanistic philosophy. Thanks, Laurent, for illustrating what Stronger Together stands for. Season one of the initiative successfully ended, while season two is planned to start in December. Let me also mention that panels will be celebrated by NFT airdrops. Stay tuned for further updates. Do you think that a network state can become a sovereign state at some point? Or what, what, what would it need to actually achieve this? Mm -hmm. So Biology says that it needs diplomatic recognition from pre-existing states. Mm -hmm. And there are a bunch of NGOs, non-governmental non organizations around the world, um, some of which I have deep respect for, um, a lot of like fraternal organizations like the Rotary Club, which is kind of like a business network and, and charitable organization, as an example. Mm -hmm. And so these obtained diplomatic recognition from the UN, um, and so they act almost as like proto-network states in some ways. I think maybe the most recent and compelling example is actually Israel. It's kind of like a synthetic state, which is the product of all three coordinative myths of uh, ethnicity, religion, and nationality. And its citizens kind of go abroad and, and can act in unison, even when embedded in 
kind of like other geopolitical territories. So, so that's, I think, the most profound example today is this like network of minds which attained a new territory, which then is still in the process of obtaining kind of diplomatic recognition from other states. Mm-hmm. You say it so well. <laughs> <laughs> can a network state be applied? On, I mean, I'm assuming that this is a yes to this question. Can a network state also be applied to us on, on a smaller scale? Or is this actually what you're trying to start with or achieve with Valor, in a sense, with your project? Mm-hmm. So Biology says that Network states are only those things which crowdfund multiple territories. Because he argues they have to be decentralized in the land itself, mm-hmm. non-contiguous land ownership. And then it also needs this diplomatic recognition. I suspect that this isn't quite necessary. It's like the, the point of there's a point of diminishing returns. And I don't think that many countries in the world today will want to give up territory. Even if the people that are living there are connected to there have high income or supposedly a high population. I am a little more, I would say, both cynical and optimistic about this. I think the effort required to deliver the benefits of such a thing is lower. And that reaching beyond that is kind of like a more hubristic state, especially when we have kind of like a monopolar world security apparatus, um, at least for now. I suspect that we have to build on top of things as they are for now um, and treat them as a platform. That doesn't mean that we have to give up sovereignty in our monies, sovereignty in our values, or sovereignty of association with each other. Because we have like these NGOs like Rotary Club, fraternal organizations, which used to be a lot more popular in the West, mm-hmm. and they're still pretty common in, in Europe, as far as I understand, and they typically flow through families and are associated with like old trades like you know Smith or Fletcher or you know whatever. And so I think that this is actually what we're going to move towards is, is kind of like a fraternal understanding of the network state uh, instead of a diplomatic understanding. Hmm. I like that fraternal. Well, let's try to let's try to make sense all of this uh, because it can be it can be pretty abstract with what we're talking about and just put it in a concrete example with what you're trying to do with Valor. I mean, Valor is is more of a tooling, as I understand. And actually, from the information that you shared with us, if I if I can quote this, Valor is a platform play that seeks to solve the operational and regulatory challenges to bring decentralized groups to a centralized residence, which is what you actually talked about before in the beginning. Can you actually, can you take us through the Valor protocol? What actually are you trying to solve with Valor? Right. So the insight is that the world has made it, well, the internet really has made it easier to work from wherever you want, Mm -hmm. to hop on Google Maps, to look at restaurants and landscape and amenities, to hop on Zillow. You can even explore like the houses that you might want to buy in VR. You can do everything about migration or relocation easier than ever. The only thing that's really missing is your friends. Mm. So we've got you know Starlink. Um, you can get internet wherever you want now. You can work wherever you want now. The only thing missing is the social. So if we can if we can solve this this component, we can reprice all property on Earth and disintermediate the city because of remote work. The usefulness of the city is declining, and it's primarily used by young people to find friends and find mates. Um, Because we have this, again, Zoomer generation that's very app intermediated, and because of the rising cost of cities, and also potentially the rising safety issues of some cities, at least in the West, I think there's a lot of interest in kind of re-suburbanization. We're seeing some of that data come through. And so the idea. Sorry, sorry to interject. The, the, sorry to interject. Mm-hmm. This data. This is more U.S. centric. You're talking about the resuburbanization. No, no. I think this is U.S. Well, I mean, it's that is definitely the or just in general what I'm looking at primarily. But this seems to be happening all over due to the global remote work phenomena. Right. It's not happening in all in all socioeconomic you know tiers. It's primarily happening in this like upper middle class. And I think you know we're seeing 
a kind of like, at least in, again, in America, a post-World War II resuburbanization and baby boom, which is super exciting, especially when we're like concerned about like replacement rates and, and kind of a, a depopulation crisis, which I'm not sure everyone is totally aware of. But I was just um, I was just going to say baby boom, but then yet <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the other the other side, because you mentioned that uh, you the data shows that births are rising. The information that I have is that actually they're not. <laughs> they're rising in a very small group, mm. and it's this resuburbanization group. This is the group. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a lot of factors like you know political alignment and location and socioeconomic status, and but my thought is like we need to do as much as we can to empower the people that are wanting to have kids and able to, so we can take this small you know baby hump and maybe turn it into a boom. If we can allow people to coordinate and move there where they want to. Yes. So Valor helps people do that. We think that the core driver is that we want to live around people with similar values. And those people are distributed. We have trouble finding them. Dows have been working on that for some time. We have trouble getting kind of like buy-in and stake in the game for them. A lot of the membership mechanisms that are being explored uh, through like NounsDAO and NFT auctions, work drops, lock drops in the case of Edgeware, these kind of like you know gateways to community acceptance. But now once you find each other, it's like, okay, well, great. And now I talk to you in Discord for a couple hours a day. Like what, you know, is that is that really the lifestyle that I want to live with these extremely valuable connections? Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think that people will naturally want to occupy the same space and start to exert collective action over that territory, whether it's by participating in local politics or, or otherwise. Well, great. Let's let's dive a little bit more in the, into the technicalities of, of Valor. Um, can you can you talk about the development scope of the project in terms of who's involved, who are the stakeholders, serv- whether or not they're service providers, real estate developers, because it's land, et cetera, et cetera, just to paint a, a more of a clearer picture what we're talking about. For sure, I think the the matchmaking happens between potential residents and landowners, land developers real estate professionals, and all the way up to you know municipalities and potentially even countries. If you've ever heard about the one-year Ocasa program in Europe? Um, no, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. This, is a, this is a really great kind of concrete example. So in Spain, Italy, and France, there are these like cities or, or villages really where all the young people have left. They've gone to the cities to find jobs. Mm. And so the buildings here are ancient, they're beautiful, but they need significant repair. And the only people that really live there anymore are, are the very, very old. So they have a bunch of homes that they're offering basically for $1. You have, I think it's two years to bring it up to code. The state uh, ensures that there's like lumber and contractors that you can hire that are nearby um, to bring it up to code. And then when it's done, it's yours for $1. They don't guarantee, you know, citizenship or anything. That's a separate, that's a separate thing, but they will guarantee you kind of uh, title and ownership. Mm -hmm. And so this is a, a cool mechanism because it allows people with excess funds or whatever to kind of reinvigorate these ghost towns. And so in one sense, Valor can be used as a platform for municipalities to launch this for any territory. Um, they can offer tax incentives. They can help coordinate um, bond issuance to raise funds for you know repair of roads or something. So the, the thing that we want is we want to bring money and people and then places that need money and people, whether that's people that are trying to sell houses. And so the other way to look at this is like through economies of scale. If you and I just go and buy a house, we're going to pay you know, X dollars and X percent in, in fees on top of that as transaction costs and firm costs. And crypto is really good about decreasing these, especially through economies of scale. So if we can bundle all these people and say, okay, we've got 10,000 people and 50 mil in commitments, deposits, then 
people can say, oh, well, that's now we can do something with that. Mm -hmm. We can incentivize uh, restaurant owners to move here. We can incentivize new development, um, infrastructure improvement and, and whatever. And then in five years, uh, once we've hit the final goal, maybe it's 20,000 people, then we all get like a two-year period to move there. So that's kind of the, the, the very high-level overview. The idea is still quite new. And because this has really never been done before, um, there's a lot of open questions about how we structure it legally, what stages at which each stakeholder kind of gets roped in. But at the core idea is economies of scale, bundling people and their money to reduce the cost of migration and to do so with people that they want to live with. Mm -hmm. So this has not been done before. So you don't actually have a direct competitor with the same idea. No, um, I think there are teams that are doing this kind of like on one-off basis. They're trying to figure out how do we legally control land? How do we offer amenities to our users? How do we gatekeep access? Uh, but nobody is doing the platform play. Mm -hmm. So, and where are you now um, with Valor in terms of, is this just, like you said, high level in terms of a business model idea, or have you actually started doing tangible steps? Yep. We've got uh, some tangible steps. We've been fundraising for about two months now. Okay. One of my favorite fundraisers, Riva Tez, who's involved in Praxis Society. They're uh, working on acquiring land and moving like 10,000 people into a new city state, I believe in the Mediterranean. Oh, wow. Very cool project. Okay. And so beyond that, we're kind of working on product design. We're working with two launch partners. One is in Texas here in Austin, and that's called Montanoso. Um, it's a landowner who has this kind of vision of building a European village on top of this beautiful uh, kind of Texas hillscape in, in kind of higher density, multiple homes, uh, slow growth. And so he's setting up the values and we're going to help him kind of market, recruit, and then run him through kind of the, the, the smart contract logistics of it all. And then we also have a group in uh, Detroit, Michigan. Detroit's a really interesting place to do this because the land is very affordable. There is very friendly uh, local kind of like land use regulations there. It's, a, I wouldn't, I don't want to call it a blank slate because it's a contentious term, but they're very open to radical ideas about land use in that city. And we also have a bunch of like local context because I used to live there for many, many years. Ah, okay. Okay. Um, and so there's a, an area called Holden, a neighborhood in kind of like central Detroit that has been experiencing some growth and is kind of growing into this like burgeoning arts and cultural district. And so we're working with the developer there who is a 36 unit apartment building. And we're going to try and see if we can help them market that to DAOs. Oh, wow. So, well, just a, a few steps back. So you're familiar with Detroit. So that's why it's a motivational factor for you to try to start with also, or just to implement Valor tooling there. And then second, so you mentioned DAO, the magic word. <laughs> Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So we think that it's not necessary that one DAO control an entire building. Mm -hmm. um, DAOs can work together. Inter-DAO cooperation, I think, is going to be kind of like the theme and the buzzword for the next three years in crypto. Because mm. there's going to be tens of thousands of DAOs probably. Um, some of them will have sufficient overlap to ally on certain tactical interests. Mm -hmm. um, so making it easier for them to coordinate and to pool funds is one of the functions of Valor, specifically to coordinating pool funds around colonies, um, which is the kind of current technical term that we're using to describe these settlements. Ah, so colonies, mm -hmm. sort of taking us back historically. Yeah. I am familiar with the fact that you are building the first DAO that's called Hyboria. Is that correct? That's right. So can you can you shed a little bit a little light on there what ha that has to do with with the entire concept of um, of Valor? Mm -hmm. So I think that for many new projects, especially ones of these kind of like visionary scale, Airbnb, Uber, Uber were like, you know, when people were talking about Airbnb, they were like, wait, you're going to let 
somebody live in your house, you know, a stranger. <laughs> and for Uber, it was like, you're going to let somebody, you know, in your car. Um, <laughs> so mm-hmm. we think it's the cold start problem as it's known as like, is pretty big for this. So the idea was that we would, before we kind of onboarded these initial partners, launch our first client ourselves and test some of our theories. And one of those theories is that I believe hierarchies and role models and some some degree kind of like benevolent dictatorships are a better social organizing principle, especially when it comes to land. So Hyboria is a social experiment. It's a DAO experiment. And it also serves as a kind of dog fooding um, first client for Valor. And the idea is that it will focus particularly on recolonizing territory in the Great Lakes region in anticipation of climate change. One of the ways that I look about I look at Valor is that this is actually apocalypse infrastructure. It starts as cool tooling for DAOs to move their members to central areas or to use co-working spaces or co-living spaces for their maybe even nomadic or migratory members. But at the far end, you know, within 20 to 100 years, we're probably going to need to relocate tens of millions of people who can no longer live where they are due to droughts, floods, heat, Mm -hmm. um, or lack of agriculture. Mm -hmm. And we have no mechanism for doing this today, especially no mechanism for doing this in a way that maintains their connections with those existing communities. So instead of a wave of uncoordinated refugeeism, we can have a kind of like consensual or consensus and incentivized process, which maintain community ties. This is, it's, it's, um, it's really intriguing to think about it this way. I don't think, um, I'm not sure if people are actually thinking about this, but, um, it's, it's, um, you have a point there. What is your role? I mean, I know you're the founder and, um, you, you're driving the concept. Um, what will your role be in the next, or one, once this takes off, or I know you said that you're, you're doing, uh, funding rounds. What exactly is your role? Besides the founder role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm CEO founder. I think, you know, at early stage startups, the, the obvious role of a CEO is help direct product, recruit, and uh, ensure runway. So the next, you know, year for me mm-hmm. looks like a lot of funding efforts and a lot of recruiting efforts. Okay. We are kind of getting close with um, the Urbit project and Urbit Foundation. If you're not familiar with Urbit, okay, Urbit, definitely look into it. Okay. Oh my God, it's so cool. It's about a ten-year-old project that's designing kind of like decentralized operating systems for a highly resilient and long-term future. The idea is that like it's a computer that does distributed computing that you can maintain yourself and you can fully own yourself, and that's a very abstract concept. Mm. But why we're interested in for Valor is if you know we we do consider ourselves like apocalypse infrastructure, so we want to make sure that the tools that we use to build on top of are as resilient. And so Urbit would allow our members to have kind of like full control over the stack. Um, Again, another way to inject digital sovereignty into their communities. And so there's a bunch of uh, the programming language Urbit is called Hoon. And the Urbit Foundation just opened up a a program called Hoon School. And Hoon is a really esoteric and kind of cool and bizarre programming language. But, um, you know, if if people are interested, they can travel to like uh, Prospera or Honduras or El Salvador and kind of take these classes in person with other people. They're, they've made it like a whole you know, community ecosystem project. And so I'm currently talking with a bunch of Hoon developers to get them onboarded because we really want to be using this like very cool new technological paradigm that's going to unlock a lot of functionalities in our app and our web experience that you can't do on other things. Um, one of those is collaborative computing. So if you ever used, you know, we're in Google Docs uh, prepping for this call and you can kind of see, uh, com- you know, each other's cursors and comments and stuff. 
Imagine taking that paradigm to everything you do on a computer. So full community computing. That's the kind of thing that we're looking to pursue when we integrate Orbit with Valor. Mm, Very, very cool. How big is your team now? It's about three of us. Um, We have a fellow named Grant Ever, who's um, a co-founder of a incubator over at Rochester University and the author of a book called Leading the Future. And a good friend of mine, he actually used to work with me on Edgeware. Um, So he's going to be helping with you know, business development and, and largely making sure that Hyboria runs well, a lot of community experience. And then we have a contact in Detroit named Sam Sherman, and he's a historic property developer. The guy has built hundreds of apartments, thousands of homes. Mm. And for the past 10 years, he's focused on urban rejuvenation, particularly a, a style called new urbanism, which attempts to kind of like redesign urban spaces with more walkability and mixed-use developments, meaning the buildings that are kind of like mid-rise and they feature both residential, commercial space on the bottom floor, integrated parking if necessary, which unfortunately it is in many cities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's he's bringing a lot of our kind of understanding of how property developers look at land and look at residents and helping us reimagine what those negotiations might look like. Oh, that's great. Just a, just a side note, who ch- chose the name Hyboria? What does that mean? <laughs> I did. <laughs> Um, I figured you did. it's very everything is very you know you speak of it it's it's sounds very futuristic a little sci-fi kind of for, for me at least because these are super new concepts uh, not the network state but just in general what you're talking about but yeah I'm just curious where's Hyboria what's the um, what are the roots uh, root reasoning for the name mm-hmm. Hyboria is a, a neologism or like a kind of contraction a reference to a mythical land similar to Atlantis. And mm-hmm. it was situated supposedly, the Greeks kind of describe it as being this blessed, eternally sunny, beautiful space with tons of prosperity and agriculture in the far north, like beyond frigid mountains surrounded by them. So the the, the title of the mythical city was Hyperborea, beyond the north wind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Hyborea, because it targets this like Great Lakes region that attempts to be long-term climate resilient and to produce this kind of eternal land in the face of uh, cold and catastrophe. That was the the original kind of thinking. But it's also mythical. And I think that's really interesting and important, especially in a world in which we're feeling a deluge of nihilism. Hopelessness is probably at an all-time high. People are, they have no interest in procreating. And that's like, I think like one of the, the saddest things. And so because I lean so heavily on the power of role models and this notion that people can't be something, they can only be someone. Um, I'm very interested also in the mythical person that when the people of today fail to serve as sufficient inspiration, motivation, and I, I, I like, I really actually like the word nobility. I think it means something in that, that that meaning is useful in societies um, that we have to draw on fictional concepts in order to bootstrap self and civil transformation. So Hyboria taps into mythopoeticism in order to produce this, you know, mythical and fantastic city first in the mind of people, and then they will bring it about together. Wow. Very utopian as well. (laughs) (laughs) So Hyboria, what about Valor? Valor is a reference to J.R.R. Tolkien, or or J.R.R. Tolkien. Mm -hmm. Um, And Valor is the kind of like second highest order of entities in his universe. The word means the beings that give order to land. That's very deep. So they they serve the god in that world. Wow. So and you also came up with a name? Yeah. Yeah. I, I love, you know, again, I'm like 
I'm an, a, a huge nerd and like mythopoetic geek. So <laughs> um, anytime I get to like tap into deep symbolism, I'm there. It's, it sounds like it. No, no, but it's, it's, I, I think it's, um, I think it's fascinating. I think, uh, also, just what you said, you know, we, we keep talking about these, you know, network system, network ecosystems and network states and how connected we are and the internet. But on the other side, we're mm -hmm. becoming more and more isolated. And what you said, not, not sure the reasoning of, we, we can talk about the reasoning of the procreation to no end. But um, yeah, I think it's, these are all very useful conversations in having us think about how to organize, right? How to, mm -hmm. how to organize, how to live our lives, well, actually the purpose of everything as well. So honestly, I mean, in terms of your, your, your knowledge and your background, I mean, I, I just find it fascinating that you're coming with, up with all this stuff. So it's, it's very, very cool. <laughs> so you're, you're talking about funding. What's, what's on your roadmap in terms of Valor and Hyboria now or within the next year? So yeah, I know you said that you're going to be doing a lot of funding, but um, what's your vision for the next year? Mm -hmm. So in spring of 2023, the alpha release of a project called Holium comes out. Well, Holium is actually the, I think the company and the product is called Realm. And Realm is a reimagining of the digital community space using the Urbit platform, leveraging a lot of those community computing functionalities I mentioned earlier. Um, we intend to put Hyboria on Realm uh, as one of the kind of like the launch partners. Um, so that's that's the earliest thing. We're going to be launching memberships for Hyboria as well through a NounsDAO style auction. And what I mean by that is each day there will be one NFT for sale. That NFT constitutes a membership in Hyboria. Okay. And it will be you know auctioned off with with no other limits. That art is going to be very beautiful. It's going to draw on a lot of the mythopoetic concepts that I've talked about on this call. And the 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 thereafter will involve the launch of a, a cultural prize called the Hyborian Prize. So members of Hyboria will gift membership to artists, designers, writers, filmmakers, anybody that is producing culture or, or kind of like cultural objects that further the vision and values of Hyboria. I think this is going to be very, very fun. So once we get that going and we're live on Realm and our members are kind of escaped the, the hell world of Discord and, uh, <laughs> and some of these other community <laughs> platforms... <laughs> Um, we're going to continue to focus on the the infrastructure and the interface for the product, launch, starting with Montanoso, the Austin, Texas group, and the Detroit project. And the Detroit. So physically, it's Texas and Michigan that you're launching yes. the first steps. Yeah. And I think that Hyboria will end up working with the Detroit group. But because it is a DAO, and I'm, I don't, I'm not going to have full say, it'll, it'll be up to them. But I have a strong proposition. Just in terms of the funding, will will the DAO be buying land in Detroit? Am I, am I thinking about this correctly? Yeah, or yeah, that's the hope. The exact kind of like legal structure isn't quite sure. There's a, there's a version where Valor actually owns the land and then creates a kind of club service for DAOs. Um, so this is the easiest thing, right? Like um, you provide us the funds, we'll buy it, administer it for you. Um, but then you get membership cards to hand out to all of your members and, and we'll handle all the the, the backroom stuff. Um, I think some DAOs will actually want to control those assets. So then we will help them wrap, wrap the property in LLC um, and then tokenize that for them and then distribute those tokens according to the methods that they prefer. Mm -hmm. Well, this is, this is uh, very intriguing. Is there anything that you want to add to 
our conversation that I may not be asking or I may not be diving into because it's, it's such a new concept for me as well to to grasp and to understand that maybe I'm not thinking about all the right questions to ask. Um, no, I mean, I think you, you've really covered every aspect. I, I really appreciated the, the conversation. And also it lets me Keep a, keep a couple keep a couple secrets until uh, until launch. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, of course, no. I mean, it's uh, at the beginning. It's it's a bit of a hard concept to grasp, but I think through having a conversation, having you explain, things are much clearer. And and I hope that um, your funding goes goes according to plan, given the current market challenges. But mm-hmm. um, I think it should be you should be good to go. Yeah, I think that the best thing about raising in if I'm if you know any founders are listening, anyone's thinking about you know raising funds soon, if you can do it in a bear market, you're in. Your imposter syndrome dissolves. Right. So I actually encourage people to try and do this in, in bear markets because the challenge is real and it's a, a time in which I think a lot of money can be made. Oh, absolutely. Well, Tom, thank you so much for this. What's what's the best way to is there a place where people can um, refer to in terms of valor? Yep. The information, or is there any information that you're offering so people can take a take a look? Or what's the best way to follow your work or contact you? Yeah, I think um, we've got a Twitter for Hyboria. If people are interested in becoming a membership of that uh, in the membership of that DAO, okay. We have Valor underscore X Y Z on Twitter, and then my personal Twitter um, is always available as awesome. well. Awesome. I assume it's like. Tom underscore Ivy underscore one. Well, thanks, Tom, so much for joining us again today. What a difference a year makes. New projects, new frontiers, uh, new concepts of bettering life and organizing society given current and future challenges that we face on a global scale. I'm looking forward to following your milestones. This sounds amazing. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Nina. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks so much for choosing to talk with us. Thanks again to our guest, as well as thank you everyone for listening. Thank you also to the Baria Music team for providing their music. You can check out their latest album on bariamusic.com. You can find all supporting information on our website, blockchainrecorded.com, and listen to us on Google, Apple, and Amazon Podcasts, as well as Spotify, Radio Public, and Stitcher. Stay healthy and tuned for our next episode.